Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, thank You for the reminder already through these wonderful songs of the greatness of who You are and Your holiness and Your majesty and Your glory. Father, we thank You that You have, Lord, been so gracious to Your people this week. Father, that in our great weakness, oftentimes, You are strong and that You remind us of just our need to be humbly dependent upon You. We thank You for the fact that You've already reminded us even this morning of the sweetness of fellowship with one another. Um, You reminded us of the fact that we need one another even to be able to pursue Christ-likeness in the Christian life. And Lord, of course, above all, we need Your Spirit and Your Word. And so even this morning, Father, as we open up Your Scripture, which is Your self-revelation, I pray that You would, Lord, give us soft and tender, teachable hearts. I just pray, Father, that You would Open the eyes of our hearts so that we might behold wonderful things from Your Word, that ultimately we might fall more and more in love with a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And Lord, not just grow in knowledge, but also that our affections would be quickened, that our affections would be moved to worship Christ all of the more. We know that that is what glorifies You. You, the Father, are glorified when Your Son is exalted through Your church and the power of Your Spirit by the guidance of Your Holy Word. Do that amongst Your people this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, verses 66 through 72 is our text for this morning. And as always, if you're able to stand with me, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 14, verses 66 through 72 is our text for this morning. This is God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are talking about. And he went out onto the porch. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. Immediately, a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. The Lord bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. The title of this morning's message is Christ's Power in Our Weakness. Christ's Power in Our Weakness. This is a powerful passage here, a powerful section that we just read about the contrast, really, between Peter and the Lord Jesus Christ, as we're going to see. Commentator James Edwards writes this, quote, Mark's trial scene is profoundly ironic. At first glance, the Sanhedrin gives the appearance of standing and upholding the law, but in reality, the Sanhedrin breaks the law while Jesus upholds it. The testimony that the Sanhedrin seeks against Jesus is in the end not provided by the false witnesses, but by Jesus himself in the claim to be God's only son. Jesus stands on trial before the Sanhedrin, but the Sanhedrin will stand trial before the Son of Man when He returns in glory. 
The Sanhedrin makes a charade of Jesus' ability to prophesy, but his prophecies all come true. Above all, it is the high priest, not Jesus, who blasphemes because Jesus is indeed God's son, end quote. And his whole point is that this whole account is full of ironies. And today, brothers and sisters, we have the opportunity to see yet another irony, and that is the one in relation to Jesus' faithfulness amidst the failure of Peter. Jesus' faithfulness amidst the failure of Peter. And you can't help but to see the contrast here in our passage, as we're going to see in the lessons that we're going to be taught as we walk through this passage. Jesus is being formally tried above the courtyard on the second floor somewhere in some meeting room, all the while Peter, market is formally being tried below the courtyard by the burning fire. While Jesus is upstairs with the Sanhedrin boldly confessing his identity as a son of God, Peter is below cowardly denying Jesus. So this whole account is yet just really full of of ironies, even as we see the contrast between Jesus and Peter. And what we see here in the experience of Peter, really, we're going to learn this morning, is a, is a powerful message for us to learn from and to ponder. Because you know what? We are very much like Peter, aren't we? I'm sure you've noticed this as you walk through the Gospels, especially the Gospel of Mark over your Christian journey. We are much more like Peter than any of the apostles, to be honest. I know I am. You see, like Peter, we've made a commitment to follow Christ. Like Peter, we've experienced the grace and the power of God in our Christian walk. But like Peter, if we're honest, we are prone to wonder. Amen? We are prone to one minute utter words of unwavering loyalty to Christ, but the next minute struggle with wandering hearts and our allegiance to Jesus. On the one hand, we are one minute prone to live by faith in Jesus, but the next minute to live fearfully of everything under the sun, even as we've learned this past year and a half. So we're not so different than Peter if we really stop and ponder this. But we'll be reminded in our passage today that while we are terribly flawed, that we are also the ongoing recipients, like Peter, of Christ's sustaining power amidst our weakness. Amen? We may be prone to failure, like Peter, as we're going to learn. But Christ, the faithful one, continually loves us, continually sustains us by his mighty power, as he is going to do for Peter. And then when he comes out on the other side, after his experience, at the end of the Gospel of John, Peter is forgiven, Peter is restored, and Peter is catapulted to be one of the great pillars of the early church. And preaches an amazing message in Acts chapter 2. A powerful message at Pentecost where many, many, many people come to know Christ. And so on the other side of this amazing journey that Peter, a follower of Jesus just like us, is on. He's going to come out on the other side victorious because of Jesus' sustaining power as we're going to see. And so we want to look at this passage today just under three primary headings. And it's very simple to take notes today. It's basically the three denials by Peter of Christ. Three denials. Those are really our three points today, okay? Let's look at denial number one in verses 66 to 68. Notice in verse 66, as Peter was below in the courtyard, 
one of the serving girls of the high priest came. Remember that following the arrest of Jesus, Peter had followed Jesus from a distance. And we saw last week that upon arriving at the palace of the high priest, Peter is eventually let into the palace because of John, the apostle John, who was well known apparently by the high priest, according to John 18. And so now, while Jesus is upstairs on the second floor of the palace, getting drilled by the Sanhedrin, by the ruling body of the Jews, Peter is below in the courtyard, warming himself by the fire next to Jesus' enemies. The courtyard was an open area in the middle of the palace of the high priest. It was an unroofed section. And so it's here that we have officers, Roman and Jewish, as well as servants, Some of them were there when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane just a little while before this, and they're all hanging out, warming themselves in the cool of a spring night. And now after that kind of a night, and the kind of an evening that it's been, the last thing that Peter wants is attention. The last thing that Peter wants is publicity. Peter is really here, curious, but he's here secretly by stealth. But very soon, contrary to what he wants, here comes this lowly little servant girl. Somebody lowly and just this servant, this slave, this bond slave of the high priest and of the palace. There were many of those. And apparently this young girl has been watching Peter from a distance. Look at verse 67. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him. Notice the two key words there, seen and looked. At first glance, those might seem synonymous or maybe redundant, but they are important for us to note. Because that first word, seen, there in verse 67, means that she first glanced at Peter. She was simply curious of him. She was keeping her eyes on him from a distance, watching him from a distance. But then the second word in verse 67, looked, she looked at him, is a more intensive word. In other words, having caught her attention from a distance, she was now staring at him with a penetrating look. She was studying Peter. And as she does this, her her suspicions are confirmed about this one who is there warming himself with the other Roman servants and soldiers. Verse 67, And she said to him, You also were with Jesus the Nazarene. The you there is emphatic. Picture her potentially pointing her finger at Peter. You also were with him. This Jesus the Nazarene, she singles Peter out from the crowd. Notice how she refers to Jesus. Jesus the Nazarene. I got to tell you, that is not a compliment to call, refer to Jesus as Jesus the Nazarene during those days. That was a derogatory way of referring to Jesus. Do you remember what, what Nathaniel said in John chapter 1, verse 45? When they came to him and told him, we think we found the Messiah. He said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And so when it came to Jesus, this was a derogatory way of referring to, to Jesus. It was far from positive. Furthermore, when they referred to Jesus as a Nazarene during those days, it was a way to refer to him and to point to him as a troublemaker, as some kind of a radical revolutionary. And so in essence, what she's saying to Peter is, you're also one of those troublemakers. 
And she says, also because John was probably somewhere near as well. John the Apostle. You're also one of those. And so here's Peter's opportunity. Note, to make a stand for Christ. To say, you know what? I have been with him, with Jesus the Nazarene. I am a follower of Jesus. And you know what? On top of that, he's not who you think he is. He's far more than that. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. And he is your hope. Let me tell you why. This was his moment. His divinely appointed moment for him to make a stand and talk about the hope of Christ that was in him. You know, brothers and sisters, we we have moments like this in our lives as believers too, right? Where there are moments when we have been given the opportunity. We have been given divine appointments. People that God sends ahead of time and circumstances that God works ahead of time to prepare us for that we would be able to speak forth who Jesus is and give them and share with them the hope of Christ. We have those moments all of the time. But like Peter, oftentimes we fall apart when those opportunities come. But they're there. We shouldn't always be praying, Lord, give me more opportunity. We should pray that way, but we should also recognize the fact that God has already sent us divine appointments. We need to seize upon those moments and pray for the grace of God to share Christ with people, right? In fact, later on, Peter himself in 1 Peter 3.15 would write this, that Christians need to sanctify Christ as Lord in their hearts, always ready to give a defense for the hope that is in them, yet with gentleness and reverence. Boy, he must have written that, obviously under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, but also remembering this moment, right? The ultimate deny when he didn't do that. And by that time, obviously, he was forgiven. But what a moment here to make a stand for, for Christ. What does he do? Look at verse 68. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are talking about. I neither know nor understand. Double whammy denial here. I neither know, meaning theoretically, that's pointing to theoretical knowledge, nor understand, and that word has to do with experiential knowledge. And what Peter is saying is, I neither know this man in theory or in practice. I neither know who he is intellectually or by way of a relationship. Well, that's the most hurtful kind of disowning of someone, isn't it? Isn't it? Imagine someone, and maybe you've had this, either saying or treating you like they don't know you, even though they might have a relationship with you. That's what Peter is doing here. He's straight up, bold-faced, denying any association or relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Here he is in the palace of the high priest, curious about what's going to happen to Jesus. But when push comes to shove, he turns his back on his Lord. All of this initial questioning makes Peter quite uncomfortable. So he attempts to create distance between himself and the crowd. Look at the end of verse 68. And he went out onto the porch. This was the covered archway at the entrance of the palace, which overlooked the the street. Peter wants to get as far away as he can from the crowd. He doesn't want the attention. He doesn't want the publicity. So he gets away physically speaking. But as one pastor has put it, a change of location is no substitute for a change of heart. What does he mean by that? 
It's quite possible for us to change our outward circumstances, but our hearts be still in the wrong place, right? How many of us haven't experienced that? That we have, we desire God to change our circumstances, change our situation, but yet our hearts are still not learning the lessons that God would have us learn. See, God is always most concerned about what's going on in our hearts. Amen? He's always most concerned about that. What is taking place here in the heart? And oftentimes, His answer will be no to the change of our circumstances or our life situation until we learn the lessons that He would have us learn. Because God is ultimately in it for our our conformity to Jesus, not for our comfort, and so that all things would be calm in our life. Right? Some of us have learned that the hard way in our Christian journey. God wants us to become like Christ. We recognize this oftentimes in retrospect, don't we? I know for me, I often look back at certain circumstances that maybe I, I grumbled about in my Christian walk. And at the time, I was not thankful. I was not grateful for what God was allowing me to go through like I should have been. But now in retrospect, I see, well, Lord, thank you that you allowed me to go through those circumstances because I wouldn't be able to endure, to persevere by your grace if you hadn't built some momentum and endurance in me with those, through those circumstances in the past. All of us have been there. So God is always concerned about our hearts, the place that where no one else sees. And so here's Peter attempting, attempting to remove himself from being the focus of, But the farther that he tries to withdraw, the brighter the spotlight comes upon him. God is not going to let Peter off the hook. And so he's going to turn the heat up on him and he's going to use it, mark it. He's going to turn the heat up by using this little servant girl who ultimately is the instrument of God's testing. This humble little girl. Look at denial number two in verses 69 through verse 70. The servant girl saw him, verse 69. Most likely this means that she, she follows Peter to the front gateway, to the front gate of the palace. She's not going to let him off the hook and began once more to say to the bystanders, verse 69, this is one of them. Notice the word bystanders, plural. The crowd of witnesses is now growing, brothers and sisters. Matthew's account mentions the presence of another servant girl, in fact. Luke's account simply says there was another person. And put together, what that means is that there's now a a growing crowd that has grown and joined in on the accusations against Peter. This is very public now. The more that Peter tries to create distance, the more he tries to hide, the more public and widespread this becomes in terms of the accusations against Peter. This is one of them, she says. Verse 69, this is one of those Jesus followers. Remember, these are servants of the high priest, loyal to the Jewish Sanhedrin. They know there's only two sides, the Jesus followers and everybody else. This is one of them, she says. Well, having been singled out, once again, Peter has an opportunity to do the right thing. To make a stand for Christ. To confess Him as the Lord that He is in Peter's life. Sadly, this is not what happens. Look at verse 70. But again, he denied it. Imperfect tense. He was continually denying it. 
Now he's, he's making a settled stance against Jesus and communicating this openly to many people. He was continually denying it to all of these people. I don't know the man. I'm not one of his followers. Explicit denial of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As one pastor has written, although Peter hopes to escape notice, he ends up betraying Jesus by what he says, where he stands, how he says it repeatedly, and to whom he says it to. Boy, this is serious, isn't it? Serious. And I think there are some lessons brothers and sisters, to learn here about the seriousness of sin and how sin works in our lives to undermine what God is doing in our hearts and lives. First, remember that sin is never isolated. We learn from this account of Peter and what takes place here, that sin is never isolated. Peter has to keep piling on lies upon lies upon lies to cover up the other lies, one sin on top of another. Many sins. It's the same with us. When instead of choosing to confess our sin, owning up to our sin, we keep hiding it, we keep excusing it, and we keep piling lies on top of other lies to cover up our sin. Sin is never isolated. Two, Your sin will eventually find you out. Your sin will eventually uh, find you out. The more that Peter tries to withdraw, the more that he tries to hide, the more he's being exposed. And mark this. This is an act of God's grace and kindness and mercy towards Peter in continuing to chase after him and turn up the heat. This is a divine testing by a gracious God. God wants to test Peter and to grow him and to equip him to be used later on. This is what God does in our lives, doesn't he? He turns up the heat. And remember, brothers and sisters, always, that if God is turning up the heat on you in an area of your life, private or public, and other brethren are coming to you and addressing an issue, keep in mind that that is an act of a gracious God because the last place that you want to be is where your conscience has been silenced. Where that voice called your conscience has been completely turned down. That is the last place that you want to be. The last place where you want to be is where nobody else, you've shut everybody out and nobody has a voice in your life. Therefore, nobody's speaking the truth into your life. Pity the person who no longer living in known unrepentant sin hears the voice of God through God's people, through the word of God, through your conscience. God is not going to let up on Peter, even using a little servant girl and other servants in the palace in the very lion's den of Jesus' enemies. See, sometimes we think that we can coddle private sin. And that perhaps, because God hasn't exposed it yet, that he's okay with it, or we've gotten away with it. But that is not the case. Don't ever forget, time and truth go together, right? Time and truth go together. Give it time and testing, and eventually the truth will come out. Isn't that what happened with King David? I mean, we don't have the the exact time frames, of how long 
David lived with unconfessed sin of having committed adultery with Bathsheba. It could have been months, maybe years. We don't know that. We don't know that. For sure, months before he actually confesses his sin and comes out clean and owns up to his sin. But eventually the truth came out, didn't it? For David. The other lesson to learn here is that Peter's fall was a gradual downfall. Falling into hideous sin, serious sin, is gradual. It's gradual. Before the act, there was a a gradual decline in Peter. And we have gotten glimpses of that in the Gospel of Mark, haven't we? For example, Peter gave himself to self-pride. He was a proud individual. Remember what Jesus said? Peter, you will deny me three times before a rooster crows twice. You're going to deny me three times. What was Peter's response? Really, Lord? Really? Why do you say that? Why do you say that? What is it about my life that you see? What what causes concern or apprehension for you that, that you would say such a thing after three and a half years of being with you? Is that how Peter responded? No. What did Peter say? I will never deny you. I will never turn my back on you. Self-pride. Two, he gave in to self-exaltation above others. He elevated himself above others. They may deny you, but I never will. Well, I guess Peter knows better than Jesus. Three, he gave in to self-will and hastiness. Cutting off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest, even though Jesus had, had told Peter and the others repeatedly that he would be delivered over to suffer and to die and to rise again, Peter still did his own thing. He still went out and took matters into his own hands. He was a self-willed individual. He gave in, fourthly, to spiritual lethargy and slothfulness. That night, what was Jesus doing in the Garden of Gethsemane as he was anticipating spiritual warfare and the, and the future reality that he would be separated from his father? What was Jesus doing? Praying repeatedly in multiple prayer sessions. And he told his disciples, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. He was guarding them, protecting them, looking out for them. And what was Peter and the others doing? Sleeping. He wasn't watchful. He wasn't spiritually vigilant or alert. Listen, sin is serious, and Peter, beloved, was in a bad place, heading into the courtyard of the high priest, heading into the lion's den, and as someone has said, Peter was an accident looking for a place to happen. He was. He was an accident looking for a place to happen. He was vulnerable and spiritually susceptible in the very lion's den of the high priest with people who are opposing Jesus' followers. But wait, this is Peter. This is the preeminent apostle. The great apostle who uttered the, the greatest confession about Jesus when Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? What did he say? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What a confession. That's exactly what you want after walking with your disciples for three years or so. He uttered the greatest confession. This is the same Peter who told Jesus, to whom else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
It's this same preeminent apostle who now shows great weakness. Why is this, brothers and sisters? Why does he show great weakness? Because even the best of men are men at best, right? To err is human. And this is the case for even us who are Christians. We are not perfected. We are sinners who live by grace. We are still broken. We are still in a process of sanctification, of becoming more and more like Jesus. But we struggle in the Christian life, don't we? We are not perfect. Luther put it this way. Christians are simul lustus et peccator. That Christians are simultaneously saints and what? Sinners. We are simultaneously saints and sinners. And so like Peter, we are not perfected. We struggle this way. But see, we like to pretend that we're invincible, don't we? We like to pretend that we're invincible. That we would never get to this point. That we would never, ever, ever, ever deny Jesus ourselves. But that's precisely the problem that reveals pride in our own hearts. We are all susceptible and vulnerable to any type of a sin, brothers and sisters. Be it sexual, immoral sin, or any other pattern of sin. I don't know about you, but I've never, ever met anyone who professed to know Christ and was truly a believer who said something like this to me, you know what, I planned to fall into this sin the whole time. And I'm so happy that I did. You ever met a true believer like that? Never. Never. I've met people like this. I never thought that this could happen to me. I never thought this could happen to me. And see, we missed this. That slowly but surely, there's a a downward spiraling effect when we coddle sin in our lives. Peter was susceptible and vulnerable because of a lack of spiritual watchfulness in his life. And so this can happen to any one of us, even as believers, because we are sinners saved by grace, imperfect, flawed still. This is why 1 Corinthians 10, 12 warns us, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not what? fall. Take heed, Christian. Take heed, believer. Galatians 6.1 says that as we confront others on their sin, we should take care lest we too, as Christians, be tempted. As we talk to one another, as we confront one another, you know what? We do it in, with fear and trepidation. You know why? Because you're a sinner just as much as I'm a sinner, and I'm susceptible to the same sins that you are. And vice versa. And so as we confront one another and come alongside of one another, none of us, brothers and sisters, stands on higher ground. Not even the great preeminent Apostle Peter. Not even him. And so humility is something that we all need to grow in. Proverbs sixteen eighteen, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a what? Before a fall. 1 Peter 5, 5. All of you, Christians, clothe yourselves with humility, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Listen, you want God's blessing upon your life? If I want God's blessing, blessing upon my life, we need to learn to walk with humility. And humble people take their sin seriously. Seriously. 
Did you hear that? Humble people take their sin seriously. Humble people don't say, well, you know what? I'm weak and I'm frail, so God understands if I continue to live in sin. You know, I'm weak and I'm so humble. God understands that that I just can't help myself. No, humble people take their sin seriously, and they know that apart from the grace of God and the power of the Spirit of God, they cannot deal with their sin, but because God has given them the Spirit of God to live in them and empower them, they can say no to sin and yes to Christ, right? We are those who, by God's grace, are daily putting off sin and putting on Christ, Oh, sanctification, brothers and sisters, that that process of becoming more and more like Jesus is a two-front battle, isn't it? Two-front battle. On the one hand, we are putting off sin, abiding in Christ through repentance of our sin and daily confession to God and to others, putting off sin, repenting from dead works. And then the other side, putting on Christ by abiding in Christ through His Word and prayer. And don't forget about the church participating as highly committed participants in in fellowship with the saints. As my brother, Pastor Jay, was saying earlier, participating in church life, active in fellowship groups, active in men's or women's small groups. Hear me, it's in the context of the church that Hebrews 10.24 says that we are to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And that is a safeguard for you. The church of God is a protective umbrella over you, believer. And you want to be a recipient of God's grace by positioning yourself under that protective umbrella of the church. It's a beautiful greenhouse, the church is, where the climate and the, and the temperature and the irrigation system should be of such condition that you, like a beautiful plant growing in that particular greenhouse, you are growing in the church, flourishing in the church. And helping serve, uh, impact other people so that they're moving more and more towards Jesus Christ. That is the church. It is a grace of God that we have one another. Amen? I can't tell you this enough. I can't tell you this enough. If you are going to avoid a major collapse in your life, then you need to realize that in the Christian life, you are not designed to live in isolation, but in community. None of us are islands. None of us are. And the community of the faith is a wonderful protective umbrella over us. None of us are strong enough to stand alone, brothers and sisters. We need the Lord and we need one another for mutual encouragement and mutual burden bearing. Otherwise, we will be susceptible to any and all sin. What did Calvin say? Our hearts are idle factories, he said. Our hearts are idle factories. In other words, we as creatures, as human beings, are worshiping creatures. God created you and your heart to be a worshiping individual. The question is not, are you worshiping or aren't you? The question is, what or who are you worshiping? Who is sitting on the throne of your heart? Is it God? Is it Christ? Is it his priorities, his kingdom, and his purposes? Or is it selfish pleasure? Is it the passing pleasures of this world? Is it possessions? Is it people, individuals that you've elevated above Jesus? See, you're either worshiping God or you're worshiping yourself. There is no neutral. 
Your heart is always being filled with some object of, of worship. And since this is the case, if you are not proactively, passionately pursuing Christ, then you're backpedaling in the Christian life and you are an accident looking for a place to happen just like Peter. That's where you're at. And this is God's gracious call to you even now that you're here listening to this, that you might turn from your sin and confess Christ and say, Lord, if, I'm a, if you're a believer, Lord, I want to be renewed. I don't want to walk in, in known, unconfessed sin. Please forgive me. And I'm going to go make that right with whoever I need to go make that right with. And if you're not in Christ, this is the moment of salvation for you. This is the day that the Lord has given you by His grace so that you hear the message of the gospel, of the good news, of, a, of one who came, the eternal Son of God, to die on the cross to pay for the sins of sinners. Trust in Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that you may be saved. Stop living for yourself. Live for Christ. And so this is part of what happened to Peter here, as it can happen to any Christian. There were signs, warning signs, that pointed to Peter's susceptibility to temptation right in the lion's den of the high priest palace. And again, if you hear this morning, the lesson is very clear. If you're keenly aware that these are, there are sins that you need to repent of, right now is that moment, brothers and sisters. Right now is that moment. I want you to know that God is always near to us as believers. He is our heavenly Father. And the Bible says that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James chapter 4, verse 6. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. There is lavish grace poured out upon those who humble themselves. The pathway to Christ-exalting change is humble repentance and confession before the Lord. 1 John 1, 9. We looked at this verse last week. If we, believer, confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, if we confess our weakness, it's there in the midst of our weakness that Christ's power is perfected in us. Amen? I've seen that again and again and again in my life by the grace of God, that He is so faithful even when I am faithless. And so this confession is what Peter should have done at this point, but he doesn't. And things get worse and spiral downward even further. Look at denial number three. Denial number three in the middle of verse 70. And after a little while, the bystanders, plural, were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. Now I want you to think about this. Because Luke 22, verse 59 says that about an hour passed between the second and third denials by Peter. What's the point? That Peter has had time, brothers and sisters, to process what he's done, to even repent of it, to confess it to the Lord, to make things right, to return to his first love. He's had some time there. But instead of doing that, things get even worse. Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. How did they know that? How did they know that he was a Galilean? Well, Matthew 26, verse 73 says that the way Peter spoke gave him away. It says in Matthew 26, 73, Surely you too are one of them, for the way you talk gives you away. <laughs> Man. 
How self-indicting. Here Peter, Peter denies Jesus to all of those people and the more that he talks, the more that he gave himself away because he sounded just like a Galilean, which he was. In addition, in case there was any doubt about Peter's identity, John 18.26 says that further witness was provided, ready for this, by the relative of one Malchus, the servant of the high priest whom Peter had cut off part of his ear, John 18.26 says, One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with Jesus? Whoa! Now Peter really panics. As the people are opposing him, there is undeniable witness and testimony, so the pressure mounts. Look at verse 71. But he began to curse and to swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. I mean, he's even referring to Jesus as a, in an impersonal way. He's just a man and nothing more, in other words. He was cursing and swearing. That doesn't mean, by the way, that he was uttering bad words or profanity, as we would know it. It means that Peter was actually calling down a curse from God upon himself, like an oath. He was trying to convince them that he didn't know Jesus even by giving an oath. It was this kind of a thing. May God do so to me and my family if I'm not saying the truth. May God strike me dead if I am lying. That kind of a thing. Wow. Peter is really in the thick of his sin, isn't he? He's gotten to the point where he's even willing to bring down God's curses upon himself as a witness. This is the depth of deception that he's in. And he's showing something here in this kind of a statement. He's showing something of his view of God in the present, isn't he? Listen, there is no fear of God in Peter's, coming from Peter's mouth and in Peter's heart as there should be. He doesn't fear God like he should in that moment. And that's what happens to us. In our sin, we are more fearful of man than we are of God. We have elevated what men think and the consequences that men can impose upon us rather than the loving discipline of our Heavenly Father when we confess our sin. So Peter's statement here, and his oath and his cursing and his swearing shows something about his low view of God in the midst of his sin. The least of our concern and in the life of Peter should be the, what people think, right? If we are looking at things from an eternal perspective, beloved, and Peter, by the grace of God, later on sees this, the greater concern for him should be what God thinks about his sin rather than what men think. Proverbs twenty nine twenty five: The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be, what? Exalted. This should be the moment when Peter now pauses and says, you know what, I need to stop now. I need to repent and confess my sin to the Lord. I need to make this right with people, but that's not what he does, right? He does the exact opposite. He's so much more preoccupied with what men can do to him rather than what God thinks about what he's doing. And here's the climax. Verse 72. Watch this. Immediately. 
A rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. All four Gospels mentioned the cock crowing as a way to emphasize the precise fulfillment of Jesus' words to Peter. What a moment. What a moment. And I wish that I could tell you that this was the end of the pain, but it wasn't. It gets even worse. Apparently, simultaneous with Peter's third denial, Jesus must have been in the process of being transported now to Pilate. And as Jesus is being escorted through the courtyard, close to where Peter is and where they can see each other, Luke twenty-two sixty-one records the following for us. Ready? And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord. How he had told him, before a cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And the Lord turned and looked at at Peter with a piercing kind of look. I mean, what what a devastating moment, right? Every time I read this, I get a sharp pain in my chest. Every single time. This must have hit Peter like a sharp knife to his chest. Like a ton of bricks just hit him. He would never forget this moment. And imagine the look. Imagine the look of Jesus. This is Jesus. Battered, beaten, his clothing torn, full of sweat and tears. Full of spit from the shame and people embarrassing him publicly that way. Religious leaders and other servants. Full of blood from all the blows inflicted upon him. That face looks at Peter at that moment. All of this Jesus had undergone for Peter and for sinners such as us. And Peter has disowned the very one who was suffering and was going to die for his sins on the cross. He has denied this same Jesus. This same Jesus who who walked with Peter and talked with Peter and taught him life-giving words and who Jesus showed his amazing power in front of Peter. He's taken care of Peter and fed Peter. He has saved his life during a terrible storm. He has even healed Peter's mother-in-law. This Jesus Peter has denied. So devastating was this moment. At the end of verse 72 says, notice, and he, Peter, began to weep. The sense is that he rushed out and was weeping. Can we blame him? Can we blame him? I don't believe that Jesus' look, brothers and sisters, was one of, of disdain or disapproval against Peter. Certainly what Peter had done was, was wrong. I think this was a look of, of pity of compassion and of love for Peter at that moment. I do believe that. And why do I say this? Because Jesus knew exactly what Peter would do before this. Back in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, it says this, Jesus had said to Peter, Simon, Simon, it's never good when the Lord repeats your name, right? <laughs> Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. And then he says this, but I have prayed for you 
that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Wow. Jesus knew that this would happen. And all the while he has been praying for Peter because prayer has power and prayer does change things. And Peter and Jesus has been praying for this apostle as he prays for you and I as we go through weaknesses and temptations. Amen? He does the same for us. But Jesus knew all along that Peter would go through this. But equally in Peter's weakness, Jesus would carry Peter through this trial so that Peter again would come out on the other side and be well equipped to be used by the mighty hand of God in the lives of his people. I love that. And so you see, the story doesn't end here. Later on, Peter would be forgiven, restored, renewed. At the end of John's gospel, Peter would be charged by King Jesus himself to be one of the key figures of the early church. And again, as I said at the beginning in Acts 2, all of a sudden you see this Peter empowered, humbly dependent upon the Lord who just plunges forth into one of the greatest sermons in the history of the church in Acts 2, where many, many people come to know Christ. That Peter goes through this. Amazing. This was the journey of a true follower of Christ, brothers and sisters. This was the journey not of a, of a false apostate. This was the, the journey of a true follower of Christ. A reminder to us that those whom God uses greatly are people whom God breaks and humbles greatly, right? God is faithful even when we fail. Christ's power is perfected in our weakness. Well, as you know, October is Reformation Month as Protestants. How many of you knew that? Yes. October is Reformation Month for us as Protestants. And I was reading this week about Thomas Cranmer. hope I'm saying his name right. Thomas Cranmer was one of the moving forces of the Protestant Reformation in the mid-16th century in England. And Cranmer, if you've had conversations with people, he was known for his bold stance during the Protestant Reformation. And all these amazing things are said about Cranmer. But what many people don't talk about was that at one point, Cranmer, fearful for his own life, actually denied Christ. Thinking that maybe Mary, the Queen of England, would show mercy to him if he, if he denied the faith. It was in 1555 that Cranmer was excommunicated by the Roman Catholic Church in Rome. But as the Roman Catholic Church turned up the heat and pressure mounted and they turned up the heat on believers, Cranmer weakened in his commitment to Christ. And he even went so far, listen to this, as to sign a statement in which Cranmer denied Christ and his Protestant faith, thinking that his life would be spared. Even so, Cranmer was condemned to die to burn at the stake. However, by the grace of God and by the sustaining power of Christ, just before he was being put to death by Queen Mary, Bloody Mary, Cranmer renounced his denial. He went back and once again claimed loyalty to Christ. And once more, in the clearest, most thunderous way, he made a bold stand for Jesus while being burned at the stake. You know what Cranmer did? He took his very hand, the very hand with which he had signed the denial, and he held that same hand in the flames until it was burned to a crisp. 
The flames then scorched his body and he died as a martyr for Christ. You say, was that penance? No. It wasn't penance for Cranmer. His heart of repentance led him to do that. To once again confess Jesus and confess the wonderful truth that had been rediscovered during that period of time and make a stand for Christ. He did that. But listen, even Thomas Cranmer, though used mightily of God, had a temporary lapse of faith, but ultimately he did not deny his faith in Christ. Why? Because he was such a great guy? Because he was so powerful? No. Because Christ's power was made perfect in his weakness, right? That's why. Because of the sustaining power of Christ. So what do we learn, brethren, from Cranmer and from Peter's journey as believers, that God is faithful in the midst of our failure and that Christ's power is made perfect in our weakness. Amen? I close with 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 11. Listen to this. In fact, I'll read from verse 8. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, Descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. It is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, with Christ, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. And listen to this. If we are faithless, Christ remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Praise God. Amen. And when we are weak, he is strong. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder through our brother Peter, that great apostle that you use so mightily for your glory, for the advancement of the gospel of Christ here in this world, for the building up of your church. Thank you for the reminder that he, flesh and blood, just like us, was weak and frail. And it wasn't about the greatness of the man. It was about the greatness of you, our great God. Thank you. Thank you for your sustaining grace. Thank you for the way that you've shown yourself faithful and powerful and mighty this past year and a half and counting in the face of such difficult circumstances that we've been in, in the midst of, not only in our country, but all over the world. Father, I pray that, Lord, as we look upon Peter, that we might be reminded that being flesh and blood just like him, that you are the one that continues to sustain us. Father, help us to be reminded of the fact that when we are weak, you are strong. That when we are faithless, you remain faithful, for you cannot deny yourself. Father, help us that that would catapult us, that sense of confidence not in ourselves but in Christ and in his power, that that sense of confidence in Jesus would catapult us to be more and more on mission for the sake of the gospel in this world. Help us to be bold for Christ. Help us to speak forth the mysteries of the good news of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.